0: Good morning, friends. Good morning. Well, I'm Herman. As you, you, know, as you heard, I'm, from, I'm with the Christian Union at RMIT. I've been given the privilege to talk about John 15, 1-13 with, with you guys at Mafra Community Church. In 2011, a man by the name of Harold Camping predicted the end of the world on May 21st, 2011. In the following following months, some of his followers sold all their possessions and donated, donated millions of dollars to Harold Camping in order to warn people about this supposed upcoming apocalypse. Obviously, since we're still here, I think we can safely say that the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet. But, this begs the question, how did a bunch of supposedly devout Christians, instead of listening to the words of God, chose instead to listen to the words of man? To that I'll ask another question. What should we as human beings cling onto? The picture I have, when I imagine someone clinging onto something, is like a baby clinging onto their mother when confronted with something scary like a big loud dog and i think we would see the baby's need for comfort in the face of something really scary like this big loud dog and i think we see that need for comfort and security in jesus's disciples as they were terrified with the concept of jesus leaving them his disciples have been with Jesus for three years. They've been shown a new way of life by him. They've changed so much. Jesus has been their leader and their good shepherd. And they felt as though they were being abandoned and that the good shepherd was going to leave leave them to the wolves. However, Jesus... Who knew that his time was up and that he was going to leave the earth to be with his father, comforted them and reassured them. And one of the ways he did so was to tell them that he was the true vine. Let's have a look at John 15, uh, verse 1 again. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Why is this so comforting? To better understand why Jesus uses this picture of a vine, we need to go to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with it choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Isaiah gives us a picture of God, singing of his beloved. God has done everything for this vineyard. He cares for it so much that he ensured that it was planted in good soil, that bad things like stones were taken away, and that he was with the vineyard and protected it with a watchtower. Yet, for all the blood, sweat, and tears that God put into this vineyard, what did he get in return? Those of those of you who do some gardening would know that if you take care of a plant, you'll expect to get good results. Something like beautiful flowers, delicious fruit, very aromatic herbs for cooking. So, it should come as some surprise to us that God, for all his hard work and dedication that he put into this vineyard, when harvest day arrived, he got wild grapes. Not the good grapes that should have grown. As the vineyard bears only bad fruit, despite the fact that it should have produced good fruit. The vineyard is a metaphor for his chosen nation, Israel. God had cared for Israel. He provided them a place for them. He protected them. With a, he loved them. He looked after them and he tended to them. But Israel acted in a way that disgraced God by what they did. Despite all that God had done for Israel, they didn't glorify God by what they did and how they acted. A number of Old Testament passages in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in, in Psalms, all use the same metaphor, that Israel is God's vine. And they, sh- and they show how God lavished his blessings upon Israel and how corrupt Israel was in response. God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, I planted you a choice vine, wholly of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? This helps us understand what Jesus was talking about in John 15. It helps us see why Jesus, as the vine, is such a comfort for his disciples. In Isaiah, Israel was the the grapevine that produced only bad grapes. Here, instead, we have Jesus, the true vine. It means that whereas Israel was a failed vine, Jesus is the true vine, the vine that Israel was always supposed to be, but never was. But Jesus expands upon this metaphor. We see that there's more to the picture here. Verse 5 reads, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. According to verse five, we are the branches that are attached to the true vine, Jesus in Isaiah chapter five chapter five, verses one to two. God acted as the carer for his vineyard in John fifteen God still acts as the vine dresser, but now Jesus identifies him as my father. Part of his point here is that the only way to be be connected to divine, is to remain in Jesus and his father. More than that, God is saying that, no, Jesus is saying that God is still intentional about growing his vineyard. God hasn't given up on that project. It can sometimes feel that God is distant to us and it's really going to feel like that for Jesus' disciples after he gets crucified. But Jesus is reassuring us here that God is committed to growing his vine, his people. So strong is God's commitment that in verse 2, when it comes to Jesus, the true vine, his father still takes care of the branches that bear, bears fruit by pruning them so that they could be even more fruitful. That's, our, that's true of our lives as Christians, Right? We wouldn't be able to bear much fruit in our Christian lives were it not for God's painful pruning. The trials and difficulties we face are some of the means that, that God grows us as Christians. We need to keep this in mind when we encounter these difficult times. And we should be assured that it will be used by God to, grow, to prune us so we bear even more fruit. God is deliberate about this; He's in control, as seen by the intentionality behind His actions to care for His people, so that they'll be they'll grow to be more like God's people and glorify God. So the Father is pruning people to bear more fruit. But what does that? What does He do with those who do not bear fruit? He tells us in verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. What does that mean? I think Psalm chapter 80 verses 7 to 18 is going to help us answer this question. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who passes along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field... Feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burnt it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself then we shall not turn back from you. Give us, new, give us life, and we will call upon your name. In this psalm, we see from this, the same metaphor of the vine being Israel, that the Father is the caretaker of the vine, and brought it out of Egypt and cared for it. Yet, because of Israel's bearing of bad fruit, God allowed for it to be destroyed. As we see that God destroyed Israel's walls and allowed his enemies to pillage and ravage Israel in verses 12 and 13. And set it ablaze in verse 16. Yet, the person who wrote this psalm still has hope that God remembers the promises he gave to his people. That he will revive Israel as we see in verse 18. But why? Because the people of God belongs to the Son of Man. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father as we see in verses 15 and 17. I think this helps us understand what Jesus is talking about with those who do not bear fruit. That we need to stick with Jesus. Otherwise we won't bear fruit. So he's not saying, if you don't do enough for me, that God is going to cut you off. The point is, abiding in Jesus is this new way to bear fruit. Sometimes we as Christians, we get worried about our standing with God. And worry that God might cut us off. But two points can help us. Jesus was talking about the nation of Israel, which rejected God. And therefore we'll be cut off. The second is that we are already in the right relationship with God. Because verse 3 says, We are already cleaned by the word of Jesus. Jesus' words of life teaches us the truth that we need to abide in him. And that those words cleans us by speaking life into us. Because of Jesus' words... We broken, sinful human beings have a new mindset as one of God's people. One implication of this is that we can't make ourselves worthy of being one of God's people by our own works. Doing so is like holding a rotted, slimy, maggot-infested apple and saying, Behold, good fruit! (laughs) Only when we abide in Jesus... Do we truly produce good fruit? Imagine if you will, you and two friends were climbing a tree and that once you were near the top, a strong wind comes. You and your friend bought some safety equipment and it just, it's so safe that even winds up to 100 kilometers per hour can happen and you'll still be secured to that tree if you put it on. You strap yourself to this tree and you're and you're attached to this tree, you're clinging onto this tree, you're not going to fall off this tree anytime soon. You look over to to one of your friends. Instead of doing the safe thing to do and using that safety equipment, they grab a pack of blue tack and use that to attach themselves to the tree. And then you see your other friend, and instead of you know putting on the safety equipment or even using a blue tack, he clings onto the ankle of, the, of your friend. He, he's clinging onto the tree using blue tack. So the wind comes, and you know, you're safe because you have anchored yourself to this tree. You've clinged onto this tree. You have abided in this tree. Your friend was using a blue tack, and your other friend clinging onto the other friend. Not so lucky. They fall off the tree and they cry out, asking. Out to you, asking, why are you still attached to that tree? Weren't they also attached to the tree, friends? I think we can both see that neither of them were actually attached to the tree, and they weren't clinging onto the tree. They'll cling onto they, weren't even, they were they'll cling onto either the person or they weren't even giving the effort to actually cling onto the tree. If we truly abide in Jesus. We should be clinging onto him for dear life, like we would with that tree. Jesus should be the one we run to and hold on to, because only Jesus can connect us to the Father, and only Jesus can provide for us. Jesus speaks of his Father and the need for his followers to remain connected to him, so that we can bear fruit for the Father's glory that's what we need to do abiding in jesus is the only way to bear fruit and provide us and provide us shelter when god comes when jesus comes again the important phrase here in this expression abide in me or remain in me the most, one of the important parts of this passage it's repeated throughout verses 4 to 7 so what does it mean to abide in jesus I think Jesus himself gives us the key here when he says in verse 7, If you abide in me, my, and my words abide in you, that if we truly abide in Jesus and cling on to him, his words also abide in us and cling, cling on to us. He instructs his disciples to abide in him because that's the only way in which you can bear fruit. Jesus is saying That if you want to be spiritually alive and spiritually fruitful, the only way to, to do that is to remain attached to him, to stay connected and keep tapping into him. But one question could be asked. Do we really need Jesus? I mean, surely we can produce fruit that is good enough to glorify God. Surely good people can please God. That's what most Australians believe, I think. I'm basically a good person. But let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever lied? Have you ever got angry at someone? Chances are, we've all done that. I'm definitely guilty of that. We're only human. But that's the problem. We're only human. Psalm chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 says... This is what we are like, corrupt and unable to do good. The truth is, friends, we all need Jesus and we need to keep clinging on to Jesus and and abide in Jesus because just as Jesus abided in the Father's love and obeyed him, so too should we abide in Jesus and, and obey the words he has spoken into us because there's nothing we can do ourselves to make us right with God. But don't let, that be a, don't let that be a discouragement because Jesus welcomes and embraces us with joy and love as he yearns for his joy to be in us so that our joy may be full as seen in verse 11. And that he loved us so much that even though we hated God, that we have turned away from God, that we wanted nothing to do with God. Jesus and the Father still loves us and invites invites us to be His people. Jesus then goes on to say, in verse thirteen, that greater love has no no one like than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Australian society, a person who sacrifices themselves to save their mates are thought as a of as a hero, filled with love for their, for their friends. Yet how much greater is Jesus' love, who whilst we were still his enemies, he still died for us on the cross that all our evil deeds died with him and then, and that we can abide in him and cling on to him and be called one of God's children, and not only that but his friend. So in light of this passage, how should we respond? I think if Jesus' words are what cleans us and are mighty to renew and transform our minds, doesn't the word of God deserve the highest reverence we can give it and so much more? Abiding in the word of God is so important. And sadly, when Christians are led astray, that's, it's when the Bible is ignored in favor of human tradition or human opinion, or sometimes because we don't think highly enough of the Bible to, to to even think that it's worth giving a read. I mentioned Harold Camping at the start of start, where because of his opinion that Jesus was going to return in 2011, he caused his followers to lose the entire livelihoods. And stumble in their faith. Yet the really sad thing is. All of this could have been avoided. If Harold Camping or his followers. Read their Bibles. Because Jesus clearly stated. That no one is going to know the hour. Of his return. If God's word. Are the words. That shows us the free gift of eternal life. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely. Surely. At the very least They're worth respecting enough to give it a read And because of the greatness of God's word That he loved us First Do we love others In the same way that Jesus loved us By sharing God's word With them The very words that promises to clean us And give us eternal life Do we lay down our lives For our friends By putting the needs of them before ours so that we can come to the front of God with confidence and call call him father and when we tell people about the greatness of God and what he has done in our lives do we do so with the gentleness and respect that Jesus showed to us even though we stood before God as his enemies do we show Jesus' love for us in our day to day interactions with people do we live out our lives as such that shows that Jesus abides in us, that we abide in him, and that we are his disciples? Finally, friends, remember that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples to comfort them in their great time of distress, because he was leaving them. Until Jesus returns, we will face pain, sadness, grief, difficulties in this fallen world. And right now, Jesus isn't here sitting beside you at the table, slapping you on the back, saying, She'll be right, mate. But he does promise you this that you will be okay in the end, as long as you're connected to him, the true vine, by clinging onto his word. If Jesus Christ is your savior, God will look at you at the, on the last day and he will say, Well done good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master.